You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here with the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. So glad to have you with me today in a new location. I know it seems like I've said that almost every week for months, but mostly I was moving around in a specific home. And we have moved. We have relocated, uh, moved about 10 minutes away from our original home. And so now uh, I am in a spot which I can pretty much set up and leave all my gear, which I'm very excited about. If you need a visual, I am broadcasting from the basement of our new home. It is unfinished. I am surrounded by pipes, uh, Tyvek, which is a kind of a coating for the, the exterior walls, uh, some bare wood walls, and 20 feet to my left, the furnace, which means if I do not adjust the thermostat to make it not kick in uh, air conditioning or heat in the middle of the podcast, you'll hear, but I have taken care of it this week. I've remembered. I've remembered. I tried to record yesterday and about three sentences in the furnace kicked in and uh, it was not the professional sound for which we are trying to achieve. Regardless, good to be in the new place. New house, I said, is about 10 minutes south of where the old house was. But it's a whole different world down here. Like, I'm, I know we're in Kansas City, but I'm joking that our Walmart is in Tulsa. We feel so far south. I actually said to Kelsey the other day, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go into town today. We live in a subdivision. I, we are not out of town, but we kind of are. It feels mentally like we are in the middle of nowhere, and we are loving it. We got like raccoons walking right down the middle of the street. Um, it's just, it's completely different. A lot of fun. Uh, the best part of the move for me, and if you've moved, you know that there aren't many good parts of moves because it's just hard, particularly with the big family. Best part of the move, though, we pull up with the big truck with the first of a couple of loads. And the kids pile out of the van, and by the time they get into the driveway, standing flat-footed on the driveway, there are five children standing across the street on the curb, shouting their names as ways of introduction. It has been fantastic. It is like they get up, they eat breakfast, out the door, and there's about 12 or 13 kids in the neighborhood that all roam as a mob and play together. Really, really sweet kids. So, very fun to be here in the new place. Week before, we took a couple of days and went down to Lake of the Ozarks, which was also a lot of fun. Kids spent time uh, kayaking and just sitting around by the lake and, and being with friends. That was all good. On the drive back, I saw something that made me go, hmm, in the ways of Arsenio Hall, if you're old enough to remember who that is. As we were driving and looking forward to getting back home, we go by a billboard that offers a discount price on cremation. And I couldn't help but wonder, who is that billboard for? Like, what person is driving down the road, and they've never thought about cremating someone before, but then they thought, well, you know, dang it, that's a good price. Or maybe they've got someone they need to dispose of, and that is the impetus for them to do so. I just, I don't understand who thought a billboard advertising a discount price for cremation. Apparently it works. Advertising works. I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. 
Today's podcast is going to be in two parts. Uh, part one is going to be some Q&A. Took some questions over uh, last night, some of them which are really, really good. Tried to pick out. Can't do them all, but I'll do some of them. And then we will roll into a message that Kelsey shared on Sunday morning. Kelsey spoke on Sunday on why pray for government. Now, as we enter into an election season, uh, the ideas of politics and government are at the very frontal lobe of everyone's brain. And Christians have a tendency to do one of two things. They either pick a side and fight to the death as if that side were righteous, whatever side it is, or they throw up their hands and run screaming the other way, saying, I don't want to have any part of this ungodly endeavor. It, it seems like they go one or two ways. There is a third, and I believe a more kingdom way, to relate to the world of government and politics. Kelsey taught on this subject on Sunday, and it was fantastic. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, how you relate to government and authority is a clear reflection of your spiritual walk. And there are certain things that Scripture tells us to do in relation to government. Don't confuse government with politics. Politics is small and petty. The idea of government is God-ordained, and it is a really important subject as we go into an election, which is full of politics, that we think of things from a governmental perspective. Super, super message. Before we get to that second part of the podcast, though, we're going to do some Q&A. I opened up the questions on Instagram last night and was quickly flooded. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I've ever gotten this many questions. I cannot get to all of them. I'm going to grab some of them that I think will be of, of most interest or maybe that are just a little fun to think about, and then we will roll right on into Kelsey's message. Question number one, and this one was the one I have wrestled with. I just got this just last minute, but I have wrestled with this thinking about it because it's such a good question. How would you parent differently than you did when you were younger? How how would you do things different? Uh, and we're a great kind of, I don't know, test study for this because we had our first child when I was 25, Kelsey was 22, and uh, we got Scout when I was, what, like 48? So we have done this over a long season. Would we do things exactly the same? Are you out of your ever-loving mind? No, 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 I wouldn't do things the same. I look back, and I think we did the best we could with what we knew. But we know a little more now, which you should over a couple of decades, and, you know, bajillion kids that we have are in the process of raising. This is what I think I would do differently. I think I would try and be less reactionary and more proactive. Uh, I, I think maybe it was because I was so young. Um, I, I'm not sure, but I had a tendency to wait to see what the boys were going to do and then respond to that rather than clearly lead them. Uh, the direction that I wanted to go, or at least to where the boundaries were. I think with the younger kids, I have uh, clearer boundaries and bigger boxes for them to roam in. Uh, I don't react to everything, maybe, that I did uh, with the older kids, um, partially because I can't, because there's just so many of them that were overrun, but really because I don't think it's helpful. So we try and give clearer boundaries, but as much freedom as we possibly can. Now, that's easier to do when you're a little bit older and have practiced on some other kids. But looking back, that's what I would do differently, probably. Clearer boundaries and, and larger spaces to roam, uh, giving them more freedom than I did the older kids, uh, but also giving them, them hard lines, and this is where the edge is. Because I think there were times in my um, attempt to soften or um, my attempt to relate that I probably confused the kids more than I led them and 
I, I regret that. I mean, they're fine. We're in great relationships. It's all good. But I would have done that differently, I think. Question number two. Here's an easy one. Pre-trib or post-trib? Somebody is trying to start a fight. I can tell it. I can just sense it. I know where this question came from. I'm just kidding. No, you know, Brian McLaren, uh, who was a part of the emerging church movement in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the, the movement kind of emerged and, and disappeared. Uh, one time he was asked a very thorny question. I'm not going to get into that one because it's a whole different podcast. And McLaren sighed, and he said, oh, no matter how I answer this, I make some of my friends sad. And he never did answer it. I am not Brian McLaren, okay? Uh, I, I know that however I answer this, I'm going to make somebody sad, but it's not going to stop me. Um, I hold to a post-trib or late-trib position, meaning I believe the return of Jesus comes at the end or very near to the end of the seven-year tribulation. Now, I was raised and educated to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, where just at any moment Jesus was just going to return and take believers and everyone else's to fend for themselves but I can't find it in the Bible. I mean, I know the verses that, that I was taught to use, but I, I can't find a great uh, support for it in the Bible. I believe the Lord will keep and protect his bride through the most tumultuous times in natural history as a display of his power and an extension of his love to those who don't know him in order that they may come to the Lord. Now, I will say really smart people disagree with me. Not all smart people. But there are smart people on both sides of this. This is not an uh, issue on which someone's salvation hinges. However, it might be an issue about how someone's preparation for the future hinges. And so I do think it's an important question. And so I'm, I'm post or very late trib. That's kind of where I land. Another question coming in. This was from Oklahoma. The question is, what part of the Bible should you read when you don't feel prompted to read any certain book? If I waited until I felt prompted to read a certain book, I wouldn't read the Bible much. Now, maybe that's because I'm not very spiritual. Uh, I'm trying. I'm getting better. But I rarely feel prompted. I, I don't read the Bible based on what I'm prompted. I read according to a plan. I find a reading plan that tells me, read these chapters on this day, and I read on that day. Now, there are other times when I also just need to spend time with the Lord, and uh, I will. my default is to go to Psalms. I spend a lot of time in the Psalms every week uh, because it speaks to me wherever I am. Just keep reading. There's such a range of emotion in the Psalms. So Psalms is kind of my go-to, but make a plan. Don't wait to be prompted. You will not be prompted. It might happen, but not very often. Get a reading plan, use version, and just click it out. You will look back and be so glad at the range of reading you have done. Question now from Delaware. The question is, how does one get a radio show in the D.C. market in 2012 or residing seven states away? Now, what this all means is back in 2012, I had a show on WTNT, which was in Washington, D.C., uh, started in the evenings, then moved to drive time in the mornings. And his question is, how did you get that job from seven states away from there? The real shocker is not that I was seven states away, because lots of radio is done remotely. That's just kind of the way it's, it's done, especially now during the pandemic. The shocker was that I was on the air at all. This is what I mean. The D.C. market for radio is in the top 10 markets of the United States. Every radio market is given a number based on population. In the U.S., 
New York City is, of course, number one. L.A. is number two. Chicago is number three. You go all the way down to Washington, D.C. is number seven. Out of the, so it's in the top ten. It's quite big. And radio personalities always want to move up. They come out of broadcasting school. They take a job somewhere in Casper, Wyoming, which is like a 299th market. Then a year or two later, they move to Kalamazoo, which is like 189th. And then they move to Wichita, which is like 105th. And if they're really good, maybe they get to Kansas City, which is like a 35 market. You want to try and move up. Most lifelong broadcasting people never get much past that. The competition is just too cutthroat. There aren't a ton of people that want to go to Casper, Wyoming. There are more that want to go to Kansas City, and everybody wants to go to that top 10 market. It's just that the competition is so cutthroat. So to break into a top 10 market in broadcasting requires a vast amount of talent. Or you can do it the way I did it, with no training, because a friend opened the door. Isn't that how you get jobs? I met a guy at a prayer event. His name was Gumby Houston. Not his legal name. His legal name is Houston. I think his first name is David, but everybody calls him Gumby. And Gumby is a just a friendly, kind, fun guy. Longtime Young Life leader, and he owns several radio stations in the D.C. area. And at one point, he asked me if I would do a 30-minute show on adoption on Saturday mornings on his talk radio station. Now, here is the secret. No one listens to talk radio on Saturdays. Like, nobody. That's why they've got the guy on there talking about plants and lawn care and adoption. Okay? Nobody listens. So Gumby didn't have anything to lose. Put me on, and I, I don't know, did maybe 15 or 20 shows. And he came to me and said... Hey, I think you could do this for real. I thought I thought I was doing it for real. He's like, no, no, no. I mean a live show, the Saturday morning thing we would record. He said, I think you could do a live show. And we were off to the races. I had no training. They sent me a soundboard, a microphone, some wires, and a box. And I plugged it all in, and that went to the internet. I had no monitor, which means I had no sound from the station. I knew when the news breaks were. And so my clock was in sync with theirs, and I would sit in Kansas City and do this live show five days a week, uh, and it was the high wire because I was alone, and uh, I had nobody to bounce ideas off. I I had no mechanism for taking calls. It was just me talking. Uh, But boy, was it fun. I eventually had to start to invent characters uh, that were like my studio engineer and other people that I would refer to that never actually existed. But that's how it happened. A friend opened the door and I did it for a while and it was a ton of fun. Uh, I just could not keep up the schedule and keep up the rest of my life at the same time. So that's why I stepped away. Next question from Kentucky. Someone from Kentucky says, when someone says we want to adopt, what do you tell them to do first? Well, first I ask a lot of questions. Because deciding you want to adopt means answering a lot of questions, and this is a good way to get started. I ask them, are you talking about foster to adopt? Are you talking about international adoption? Are you talking about domestic adoption? Because those are very different things. And you have to figure out what is it that they're talking about. If they're talking about foster to adopt, there's a route for that. If there's international, there's a route for that. If it's domestic. If they're talking about domestic or international, I challenge them to do a home study. And the reason I say that at the outset is, first of all, they're going to need it. Second of all, it's kind of expensive and it's hard. And they will come back, some of them, and go, oh boy, that's really difficult. Yeah, no kidding, Sherlock. But if you can't get a home study, you probably shouldn't adopt. That is step one. That's how you get started. 
find an agency that you can believe in, that you feel good about, that you click with, and you feel treats birth moms and birth fathers with respect and honor. Ask a lot of questions and ask them how that they would recommend you get your home study and go with that. That will keep you busy for a while. If they do a good home study, you will come out of the home study knowing way, way, way more than you ever thought you would about adoption. And so that is both preparation for the adoption in the way of getting paperwork done, but it's also an education process for you if it is done well. One last thing before we go to Kelsey's message from Sunday. Super, super excited about announcing an upcoming podcast called Missions in a Modern Day World. You know, there are a lot of old school thoughts to the idea of missions where a group of people gave money to one person and that person went off to Africa and sent a letter home about once a year. That was missions. But the Great Commission is larger than that, and there are ways to do it that are different than before. The Bible tells us to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all of the earth. And how do we do that in a modern day? In 2005, Elias Reyes, longtime friend of ours, had been involved in missions for over 15 years. His business and financial experience along with his heart for independent missionaries, drove him to kind of explore new ways to support those missionaries. Now, the same year, another friend of ours, Marvin Slayton, approached him with a prophetic vision he had while on a short-term trip to China. And the words, modern day, were ringing in his ears. He felt like the Lord said that it was time that the archaic world of missions be married to the modern-day world of technology and advancement. They founded modern-day missions and began helping process funds and provide some level of covering for missionaries around the world. Twelve years later, they're serving 800 missionaries in 60 countries. During that time span, they have processed over $20 million that has been given to those missionaries. I'm going to be hosting a weekly podcast called Missions in the Modern Day. We're going to talk about some of these uh, missions endeavors and with some of these missionaries and other Christian leaders all around the world. We are super excited about this. It should be coming out sometime in September. I will keep you posted. I will uh, make sure you can find it. But uh, really, really excited to be serving modern day missions in this way. They have been a fantastic organization to work with. We have pointed a ton of people their way. And I am looking forward to stepping into kind of a deeper relationship with them as well. Take a moment, grab a cup of coffee. This is Kelsey's message from Sunday on how and why we pray for government. It's really fun to be asked to teach on this subject. Um, I've had a personal interest in government, politics, as really as far back as I can remember. Um, I, in high school, I carried a pink backpack with a, a couple books in it. I mean, my school books, and then I had my Bible, and I had this little book by Richard Halverson, who was the then chaplain of the United States Senate. And it was called, um, I think, 
not in God we trust, greater good, something, I don't know. It was a book of his prayers for the Senate. And I would uh, take that little book out and every day pray a prayer for the Senate, um, along with Dr. Halverson. And um, like Randy said, wanted to be the first woman chaplain. Um, when I was 18, I worked on my first presidential campaign and I was more excited to be able to vote than I think I was turning 16 and being able to drive. Um, I guess I was just a weirdo like that, but I've had a personal interest in government and the Lord has used that to kind of weave us through. And as we've matured in our faith and our calling, um, we've seen us, we've seen him take us into these, um, places where, um, it's not just about praying for government, but it's actually being the government of God. And so I want to, I want to talk about that today. And, you know, I'm a little emotional um, this morning. I'm just kind of looking at the faces here and realizing, wow, there's uh, like Noella. I, I, I just remember we went to DC together in 2004 or 2005, that, that the day after one thing, we got in a car and drove to DC because we were called to affect change in the government of the nation. And uh, I, I remember the Hickeys um, being in South Dakota as we were in DC, but we were partnering with Church at the Gate and, and praying for uh, the ending of abortion and um, the nation and the Grenzes, you guys jumped in on that too. And, and, and you guys are with us. And Rachel, I, I remember us sitting at McLean's in 2000, I don't know, 18, I guess, um, talking about what if, what if we went into grad school together for national security? Like, who does that? You know, we're just moms, right? But, but the Lord provoked us together that if we did this, it would gain equity uh, to understanding what's going on in the world so our prayers could be more effective. So we could actually take the book, the word of the Lord, overlay it to, to national and global events and be able to effectively um, govern and pray for governments of the world. So I'm just, I'm just touched just how God has woven our lives together and those who, who he's brought. Guys, we're not just a little Zoom church. We're not just a little gathering. We are the ecclesia of God. And that's what I... I want to talk about today, and we'll get to more of that in a minute, but, um, you know, over this crazy, I don't even want to call it COVID period, but that's kind of what we've kind of labeled it during COVID. That's what my kids say. What are you doing during COVID? Um, we've, our family has watched the movie or the play, the musical Hamilton. Um, anybody else seen that for the first time during this time? Thank you, Disney Plus. Um, and you know, no matter what you think about the, the person of Alexander Hamilton, I have a lot of political thoughts about him. But aside from that, the music, some of the music has really captured our heart. And one of the songs at the very end talks about, you know, who will tell, who will tell your story. And I think what's captured me most about that song is time. And what will we do with the time that we have? And, uh, you know, Hebrews 1140 is a, this scripture that has um, really provoked me in the last many years um, because it talks about this great cloud of witnesses, this, these great 
faith heroes, right? Hebrews 11 is that great chapter of faith heroes. And it says in Hebrews 11:40 that those guys that he's just talked about, they will not be made perfect without us unless we step in to our calling and unless we are faithful they are not they are not made perfect so moses abraham all those guys they they actually don't get the full reward unless we come in to our calling and so then in chapter 12 it says therefore because you have all these guys this great cloud of witnesses cheering you on uh, run without hindrance, throw off the weights, you know, run the race with endurance and, um, you know, lay aside every sin that entangles. And I just think here's this, this great cloud of, of witnesses sitting outside of time, looking into time, cheering us on saying, take the baton because we weren't finished. And history is going to be made perfect through your generation. And if the Lord tarries through the generations that follow us. So I want to be uh, faithful and I want to walk with faithful uh, people, friends, saints of God who are, who are looking to, to faithfully govern uh, their sphere and their lives in God uh, so that we can actually um, come into the, the great cloud of witnesses and, and they can say, well done, high five, you know. Uh, it's a team effort. We're not, we're not isolated. We're not doing this all alone. We do this together. So um, in, in light of all that, I want to talk about the ecclesia. And you may, you may have, you may call it the ecclesia. I don't, I don't exactly know how you pronounce it. I just know how Lou pronounces it. And that's what I go with the ecclesia. And so today's goal is to inspire you to not only pray for government, but to participate in the government of God, because that's what we're called to do. In Genesis, we have a mandate to take dominion over the, the earth and to govern our spheres for him. And, you know, we call, um, we call the government of our, our nation, um, you know, the Congress, the executive branch, uh, the judicial branch. God calls his administration, the ecclesia. He calls that, he calls his people, uh, his governing council. And that word ecclesia is actually in the New Testament about 115 times, and it's mostly translated church. And so, you know, I don't know if you went outside and on the street and asked a bunch of people, what is the meaning of church? And that nobody's going to know what ecclesia means, but what is, what is a church? Well, they're going to point, you know, to any corner in Kansas City and say, oh, it's that building. Or, you know, it's, it's where people go and they sing and they hear a guy talk, you know, about the Bible. And that actually doesn't quite adequately, adequately represent that word, that term, what, what God means. The ecclesia is how God administrates his government. And he mostly does that through prayer. Um, the ecclesia in that word, that Greek word, actually means an assembly or a convening, a, a congregation. It's a, really a political term. And it was when the government of, the, of a city would come together 
and govern, make decisions, legislate. And so the church, in essence, is a ruling council of a city or a community. And when you think about it that way, it's like, are we doing our job? Are we actually governing in Kansas City? Are we actually releasing light, driving back darkness, releasing um, you know, the, the government of God into our city? Um, and how do we do that? Well, we do it by prayer. And as you know, there's all kinds of prayers. Um, there's devotional prayers. There's prayers for healing. There's prayers where we just contemplatively talk to the Lord. Um, there's actually ministry to God where we tell him about how wonderful he is and we worship him. And if you know me, I'm a prayer gal and I'm about all the kinds of prayers. Um, but this, this governing uh, thing, that making declarations, making authoritative decrees, uh, because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we, we, we deal with principalities and powers in the dark and, and the high places, right? And the Bible says that we have the authority to bind and loose. Whatever we bind up is bound in heaven, you know? And we, we have the authority to take, uh, take authority over serpents and, and the enemy. It's Matthew 18 talks about binding and loosing and where two or three are gathered it doesn't say where two or three are gathered. You can have good coffee and have a good conversation. No, it says if you gather together two or three, I am there. And when he is there with us, we, we begin to govern. We begin to administrate the government of God. Uh, Luke 10, 18 and 19 talks about our authority over the enemy. Jesus actually says he sent out his disciples to, to, to bind up demons and cast them out and heal the sick and raise the dead. I mean, we are to be the church, the ecclesia of God, who does these things. Now, I am going to be the first to say that I am, um, I'm tired of Zoom. I love your faces. I love that we get to do this. I'm so thankful for this. But how many of you are with me and would say you're tired of Zoom? I'm tired of Zoom. Um, but can I just say, it's going to be more than, or we should, we should aspire to more than after this, just getting a nice little property or a nice little building just to gather. Because if we do that too quickly, we can get into this thing of, of kind of almost going backwards. And what, what, we, what we need, our challenge in this current season is to remember that we aren't just wanting to get together and gather and have our nice cup of coffee. And I'm really happy about coffee, okay? Coffee makes me a better person. So I'm, I'm all about that. But our challenge is to remember that God calls his ecclesia to actually create beachheads and become almost, um, almost a military base in a city to, to um, actually take authority, uh, I'll say authority um, in the air, like an air force, you know? Like in prayer, we want, we really do want to be the ones releasing light, releasing life in a city, driving back darkness so the gospel can go forth. That is what we are to do. Um, I think too long um, the church has just been a building where we get together um, a couple, uh, you know, once a week, a couple times a week if we're really serious. 
um, instead of being the people who govern in, uh, in, in the power of God. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Um, you know, in, in 2005, Randy and I and our family um, and a bunch of radical young adults spent um, about a year in, in Washington, D.C. with Lou Ingle. And we helped establish the Justice House of Prayer there in the district and Bound for Life, which was a ministry that prayed for the ending of abortion. And, um, you know, do you know what I mean? Like when I say there's places in cities where, where maybe you don't want to go because you feel the darkness. Like, have you ever said, gosh, I don't want to drive down that street at night because I just feel, you know, feel creepy or I feel the oppression. Does it? Has anybody felt that before? And there's definitely in Washington, D.C., there is definitely this, this I'll call it a, a demonic oppression that you can feel. It's, it's, it's palpable sometimes. Um, but because God called us to go into that place, I would walk down those streets and I kind of felt like I owned the city. Like, I don't know. I just walk down and pray, pray in the spirit, pray with understanding. And it was like faith rose up to say, no, this is our calling. We are actually here to uh, take authority over this place and bring life to this place. Because when he calls you to a place, whether it be a home and a little patch of land or whether it be a city, he calls you to take authority and to release his life over that place. And so we, we helped establish this seriously stinky little prayer room. It was Noella, wasn't it? It was, it was a little bit gross. It smelled bad. It had old green yucky carpet. Um, it was just nasty, but it was above um, the Bank of America on 2nd and Pennsylvania Southeast. And we kind of overlooked the Capitol and like two blocks away was the Supreme Court. and our building was in the shape of an arrow and we kind of said we pointed down to the White House. So we were the arrow, we were shooting out arrow prayers to affect the government of the nation. And, and we prayed for the government of America. And, you know, you may say, well, why? Why did you, you know, you can pray from home, you know, get a job and just pray. Why did you take a year with your family to do that? Why did you uproot your family just to go pray for government? Well, let me, let me read out of 1 Timothy 2, because he gives us the why we pray for government, okay? He says, therefore, I exhort you that first, and now pay attention to that word, first. This is, this is what he wants us to do as a priority. He doesn't want us, we, yes, we pray for healing. Yes, we pray for signs and wonders. I am all about that. Yes, we pray for revival. But first, here's what you do. All, with all supplication, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we might lead a godly and a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Lord, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So why do we, why do we pray for government? We pray for kings that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that we pray for government so that our lives are free from the hindrances of government. Our, our, our lives are free from the restrictions on worship. We can live quiet and peaceable lives that, that without government interference, without any kind of interference for the gospel running swiftly, for the gospel being shared in this nation and the nations of the world. I happen to believe that uh, men and women of old who came hundreds of years ago, not just the founding fathers, but prior to that, they actually came and they dedicated their lives on the shores of this nation. Robert Hunt um, in Virginia Beach, he brought ships over and he actually, he actually stopped. And there were, there were men, men on those ships who just wanted the gold. So they weren't all here for godly reasons. But he stopped the ships. He said, we're not getting off these ships until we fast and pray and consecrate ourselves because this land is going to actually spread the gospel to the nations of the world. And so we pray for godly government here in America, okay, where we live, so that not only can we assemble and gather and, and, and enjoy um, unhindered living for God, but so that the gospel can spread rapidly to the nations of the earth. Now, one of my favorite passages about praying for government is Isaiah 32. And this is actually a millennial passage. So what that means is that the ultimate fulfillment is going to happen in the age to come. When Jesus returns, the ultimate fulfillment will be then. But there are some real applications and principles we can, we can make here. Uh, and I'll just start with verse one. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. And when that happens, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a, as a cover from the tempest. So there'll be peace as rivers of water in a dry place and the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And then this is, this is key. The, uh, when, when good government happens, the eyes of those who see will not be dim. The ears of those who hear will listen, and the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. So when we have good government, the gospel of God can run swiftly and be glorified, and people will be awakened because their eyes will be opened, their ears will hear, and they will understand the knowledge of God. So that's why we pray for government. And that's why we continue to pray. And like Randy said, this election coming up um, now, it, well, it's crazy. I, mean, I don't have to tell you how crazy it is. I mean, if you watch the news, it's crazy town in every town in America right now. And we have got to continue to pray that God would give us not only the right president, but all the leaders, I mean, from the federal level down to the local, even the school boards, that's so important that we have um, folks who maybe they're not even believers, but they make right decisions so that the gospel can go forward unhindered. Now, in my um, prayer and, and study of the word about government, the book of Daniel and the character of Daniel is such an example to me of how to pray for government and how to be and act as the governor of God. Um, I mean, if you just kind of look at his life, and we'll look at it more in just a minute, 
but he, he lived a life of prayer and fasting and holiness, and his life actually caused the release of angels, the raising up and the conversion of kings, the, the release of captives from exile, and ultimately the establishment of Israel. Those things were affected by his very life and his very prayers. So when we, so we'll, we're going to look at Daniel in just a minute, but when we act like that, when we act as the government of God, when our holy living and our prayers come into alignment with his purpose, we actually do Ephesians 3.10. We actually are the manifold wisdom of God being made known by the church to principalities and powers in, in heavenly places. We're actually a witness to the spirit realm when we come into agreement with the government of God. Uh, now, Psalm 115, 16 says, the heavens are the Lord's, but earth he has given to the children of men. So my question then is, how will we govern? If, if, if he has given the earth to us, how will we govern? We can't just give it over to those who don't have the mind of God. We actually have to take, uh, take action to, to govern um, in the natural and in the spirit. And I, I just want to tell you a couple stories of, of how that can look uh, sort of in, in the natural. How, how, how does it look? Uh, I mean, yeah, we can pray, but, but what, what can we actually do besides just, you know, getting involved in campaigns or whatever? Um, I want to tell you a couple stories. So back in 2003, four, maybe even a little bit before that, uh, there was a young man at Lafayette University. His name was Brian Kim. And Brian um, went on, he was on a mission to pray for the ending of abortion, to pray for the reversal of Roe v. Wade and that abortion would end in America. And so he decided he was going to do a Daniel fast, an extended Daniel fast, meaning he would only eat vegetables. Uh, he would not eat meat and sweets, just vegetables and, and grains. And um, he would do that until the Lord said, you know, or maybe even until abortion ended. I'm not sure what he set out. Uh, but he had done that for about two years. And he was, he was on campus um, one night late studying. And, you know, he just wanted a cupcake. And he's like, Lord, you know, I've been doing this two years. I've been faithful. I think that unless you tell me differently, tonight at midnight, I'm going to break my fast with a piece of cake. Because he just felt this, you know, groaning for cake. Have you ever, I mean, Twinkies call, you guys. I mean, in the middle of a fast, Twinkies and chips, they just call my name. So, but he'd been doing this two years. So he, he'd done the thing. So, so he, 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 it's like late and I don't know, it's, it's close to midnight. And he walks over to the student union or whatever to study. And there's this kid that he's never met there. And he opens the door for Brian and he says, Hey, I, I'm Brian Kim. And this kid says, hi, I'm Daniel fast. <laughs> and he's like, okay, God, I got the picture. I am not going to do the cake. So he keeps on with his fast. So fast forward a little bit, he ends up coming uh, or joining uh, Lou Ingalls uh, kind of company of college kids that summer that are praying and fasting for the nation, for the election, um, and ultimately for the ending of abortion. 
and he ha Brian has a dream. And in his dream, he sees seas of like massive crowds of young people wearing tape on their mouth. And on the tape is written the word life. And uh, he tells Lou about the dream. And if you know Lou, this is so Lou. He, Lou's just like, well, let's do the dream. Let's just do it. And so um, Brian admitted that he dreams in black and white. So he saw no color on this tape. But they go to Home Depot to get some duct tape. And the only thing they can find is this red duct tape, right? So they grab a roll of this red duct tape and, and they go down to the Supreme Court and they put, they start writing life on this duct tape and putting it on their mouth and standing and praying silently, just like he saw in his dream. And uh, so he, he goes back to class and um, goes back to Lafayette uh, after his break and, um, by this time, the life tape had kind of gone viral because what happened is our, our little company of people, uh, our little company of kids, we heard about Terry Schiavo. I don't know if you remember uh, the Terry Schiavo case where they, um, her, she was in a coma and her family was going to, well, her, her husband at the time um, was appealing to take her off of life support. And um, her family was fighting to keep it going because they believed in life, that she, she should have um, the chance for life. So Lou sent us down to stand at her hospice with life tape on and fight for the cause of life. And somehow the media picks up on this and the life tape goes viral. I mean, it's, it's like 10 of us, you know what I mean? And it, it looks like by the next day on CNN, like there's, you know, thousands of people all across America doing this. And we're just kind of chuckling like, it's just us, you know? And we drive back from Florida um, from, from the Shivo hospice, because we know that now the case is going to the Supreme Court, but we, we uh, or it's going to the next court and, and we're in Atlanta and we're standing at the district court in Atlanta. And we get out of our car and we never do this, but we, we put the life tape on our mouth as we're walking to the court. And all of a sudden, these media guys come out of the woodwork, these cameras, and they start, you know, taking pictures of us. And, and uh, one guy gets out his little flip phone and starts calling. He's like, yeah, the life, the life tape kids. Yeah, they're here. I don't know. I don't know how they got here. They're, but they're here. And so, you know, all of a sudden, we're on the, the life tape is on Time Magazine, cover of Time Magazine, and on all these media outlets. And Brian's liberal political science professor at Lafayette University goes on a rampage in class and starts saying, I don't know about these kids with this tape on it that says life, you know, there's laws about protesting and I, they're getting around it because they, you know, they're not saying anything. They're just standing there, you know, and then she, at the end, she says, but it's brilliant strategy. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, it's brilliant strategy that God gave this kid in a dream because he prayed and he fasted and they just were crazy enough to do the dream. And now it's on national news media making headlines um, because they did the dream. And at the, you know, he didn't really want to like, he didn't go up to his professor and said, yeah, I had a dream about that because he didn't want to, you know, I don't know, affect his grade. Um, but at the end of the class, um, he, he did go up to her and said, yeah, here's the story. And she said, well, it's infuriatingly effective. And so here's this liberal professor 
saying how effective God's strategy is um, for, the, for the changing of the hearts and minds of judges. We don't know what went on in the hearts and minds of these Supreme Court judges. We don't know um, how 15 years now of praying and fasting, standing at the Supreme Court in what we call a silent siege, uh, standing there silently praying for the lives of the unborn, praying for Roe v. Wade to, to be overturned. We don't know how um, all of these things uh, will play out, but we know this for sure, that like in Daniel, when, when the angel tells him, don't be afraid because at the very first word that you prayed, I was sent from heaven to encourage you and actually to do battle with the Prince of Persia. Like that's in Daniel 10. So we can be assured that our prayers really do affect change in the nations. Um, and you know, I, I love hanging out with young adults because young adults and teenagers, man, they're just, they're just something radical. Like they'll just do this stuff, you know, where us old people, we just get tired and we kind of forget. And, <laughs> but these guys just did this stuff. You know, they, they came from all over the nation to stand and pray for the government. And in that season, our, our son, our oldest son, Jackson turned, he was turning 13 and we went to him and we said, Hey buddy, you know, you're turning 13 and, um, this is a big time in your life. Let's have a big party, big celebration. We can pray for you and it'll, it'll be great. We'll invite all your friends. And, and he, he just looked at us and he said, no mom, no dad. A third of my generation is missing because of abortion. How can I celebrate turning 13 when, when that's happening? I want to have a party, but I want to have a party in the prayer room and I want to fast and pray for the ending of abortion. And we're like, Oh, okay. Like no cake, you know, like, okay. Um, so we sent out an awkward party invitation, you know, come join us for a big party. We're going to pray and fast. We're, we're going to drink water and we're going to pray for the ending of abortion. And somehow back then, I don't think we had Facebook, but I, we put it out on a blog or something. And somehow that day, not only did he have friends gather with him in the prayer room, but he had 600 people across the nation joining with him on his 13th birthday to pray and fast for the ending of abortion. Now tell me that heaven doesn't hear that. Tell me that that doesn't affect change. I mean, give, let, let, we need to be praying for these 12 and 15 year olds, you know, to rise up. And because the, God is looking down and, and he hears their prayers and, and he releases his government at the sound of our prayers. You know, Daniel was 15, probably, probably 15, 16, when he entered his calling, I'd say, in the Babylonian government. And if you look at the whole book of Daniel, it, it spans his whole life. I won't get into all of it. I just, I want to, I want to go over it though real quick. So it, it inspires us and reminds us to go back and read the book of Daniel with this lens of, of changing government and changing and affecting um, the nations of the world. Here's this 15 year old kid. He gets taken into Babylonian captivity. And in chapter two, it says that he begins to understand dreams. Uh, he says, you know, you know, King, there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And I just heard the secrets of heaven and I'm going to tell it to you. And he does this and he's promoted. 
He's promoted because he understands a dream. He gets set into the government of Babylon where God is changing times and seasons, removing kings, raising up kings. And how's he doing it? He's doing it through the partnership of a 15-year-old who fasts and prays. That's how he, that's how he does it. And we, we need to remember that even when we're isolated, even when it feels like we're in captivity, even when it feels like nothing is going the way we thought it would, when we fast and pray, we're affecting change. God is with us. The angels of heaven are released on our behalf to not only minister to us, but to actually administrate the government of God. Um, in chapter four of Daniel, the king is actually converted because of Daniel's steadfast prayer life. Kings are converted. They're falling. They're raising up. Um, in chapter five, in chapter seven and eight, he's getting visions of God's government, visions of his throne, visions of the saints actually coming into the government of God. In chapter nine, it says that he recognized uh, the times and he knew what to do, like the sons of Issachar. In chapter 10, he's still praying, still fasting, and Gabriel and Michael, the archangels, are going out and uh, fighting with the prince of Persia so the nation of Israel can go back and build the city and build the temple. It's crazy. And in Chapter 11 and 12, he gets this last day's blueprint for something 2,500 years in the future that we're going to need as we begin and, and continue in the government of God. And so let's go back to chapter 9 for just a second, because this is the beginning of God. It's where we see the beginning of God releasing his people from exile to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. In verse 3. Daniel says, I set my face with prayer and fasting. Why? Because he knew, he knew from the Bible, he knew the Bible. He knew that 70 years was up. He knew that Jerusalem's day was, was here. And he knew it was time for them to be set free and go back and build the city. But what does he do? He doesn't just say, it's time, let's go. Rah. No, he repents. He didn't even do anything, but he repents for the nation he, he humbles himself with fasting and prayer. He repents and he, he prays um, according to the word of God. And in Ezra 1.1, 1, 1, here, here's what Daniel's prayer produces. Ezra 1.1 1, 1 says, the Lord stirs the heart of Cyrus the king. And because of Daniel's prayer, God stirs the heart of a king to actually release the people back to Jerusalem to build the temple and not empty-handed. They take a bunch of gold and stuff with them. So they have all the resources they need. So not only are they released back from captivity, they're released with resources. Daniel's prayer releases resources to do his plan. And I just said this verse, Daniel 10, don't fear because from the first day you set your face, I heard and I was sent because you're greatly beloved. But remember, in, in, in verse 2, it says he understood by the books, and that's so key for us. We've got to know the book. We've got to know the Bible. We've got to know the times we live in, and we've got to interpret the times through the lens of the Bible, of Scripture. It's so important in our day, um, particularly about... Uh, the nation of Israel, the return of Jesus, those things are really important to know right now. I mean, the sons of Issachar, they, in, in First Chronicles 12, 32, it says they understood the times and they knew what to do. We need a son of it, sons of Issachar community to rise up, to know 
um, what's going on in the world, to be able to read the headlines, to know what is true and interpret the crisis through the lens of the Bible. We've got to be a people who understand what's going on in the world and know what to do. And, it, you know, in the 1930s, there was a man like this. And I, I tell you his story because I want to be a people like this. Um, and many of you may know the name Reese Howells. And maybe you've read the book. If you haven't read the book, I recommend it. It'll probably mess up the way you pray. It might mess up your whole life. But it, Reese Howells, in, in 1920, he received a mandate from the Lord to pray. And his primary mandate was to pray that the gospel go forth to every creature in the world. His was a great commission mandate. He believed that um, he, he was to pray, pray in the great commission so that Jesus could return. That was his, his, his primary focus. And so he gets this mandate and he thinks I'm going to get, get, get some property. Now I don't, I don't, totally understand all this but when god starts to do something there is a correlation to land and property like um when, when he begins to call us to do things not that we always have to own land and property but there's something about taking authority over land and property because he wants us to govern in genesis he says i want you to take dominion um the chums i'm so provoked by you guys and what you're doing in this time like I, I seriously, I get choked up when I think about it because you're actually taking dominion over your land in this season of transition. And I mean, if you don't know what the Chungs are doing, get with them, have a cup of coffee or something and find out that their life will provoke you. Like there's something about taking property. So he, he miraculously gets this piece of property in Swansea, Wales, and he gathers students, young radical people to pray. And it, this place just happens to be near where the Welsh Revival happened 30 years earlier. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, but anyway, he, he, he gathers these kids together to pray for the Great Commission. Meanwhile, Hitler comes to power. And he's like, oh, dang it. I, I can't, we can't let that, we can't let that happen. I've got to deal with Hitler. Because if Hitler takes over the world, basically, the freedom to preach the gospel is going to be extinguished. So he takes up prayer for Hitler to, to remove him from power. He takes up prayer for the war effort, for war, because he saw the plight of the Jews. And he takes up prayer for Israel because he knows they need to be, by the word, he knows they need to be established in their homeland so that Jesus could return. He knew the Bible, he interpreted the times, and he prayed accordingly. And he knew he had to deal with these hindrances to get to the priority, the gospel being preached, the first Timothy two mandate. He's like, okay, the gospel can't be preached in all the world if Hitler's in power. So we are going to pray day and night. We're going to fast 21, 40 day chunks so that, uh, so that the war is over. And so the gospel can go forth to every creature. And here's what he says. The world became our parish where we were led to be responsible to intercede for countries and nations. And about World War II, he says this, this is the battle of the ages and victory here means victory for millions of people. And he called those students to fight the battles of the kingdom as if they were really called to be fighting on the Western front. So his little company, they would get new, they would listen to their little radio, their crackly little radio, 
and they would get news of the battles and they would pray until God sent the message from heaven by his spirit that there was victory. They would pray and pray and pray. And some nights they would pray all night and they would sit there. We, we have heard stories of students who sat inside a well, an actual water well deep inside where they would just pray all day, like eight hours inside that well for these battles to be won. And, and then when they got the release in prayer, they, they would stop. But even Churchill himself admitted that there must have been divine intervention because there was, at times, no natural reason why they would win the war. And Air Chief, the, the Air Chief at the time, Marshal Lord Dowding, in the Battle of Britain, or talking about the Battle of Britain, he said, even during the battle, one realized from day to day how much external or divine support was coming in. As time went on, they began to realize they needed to pray in the establishment of a, a homeland for Israel. They started to take on the assignment of praying that the United Nations gets established. And when it was established in 1945, Reese Howells called it a major victory for all of, all of the church. Think about that. Because he knew that in, he didn't know it was going to happen in 47, but he knew that they needed to be established so the resolution in 1947 could be passed to give Israel a homeland. Reese House travailed over these things because he rightly discerned the word of God. He knew the times. He risked everything. He gave everything up for God's purposes. And I would say he perhaps, Reese House changed the course of World War II. And Reese Howells helped establish the nation of Israel. We say it's Harry Truman. I would say maybe Reese Howells was behind it. Just like Daniel. He lived like Daniel. Now, today, what we see, you know, uh, the headlines, COVID, civil unrest, Middle East peace here, Israel this. And how, how, what do we do with all that? Well, we got to, I don't have time today, but We've got to know what's in the book. We've got to know. It's so important to know what God says, not just in a general way of how to pray, but in a real specific way. Daniel prayed fasted and got a blueprint for our day, guys. Daniel 11 and 12, 9, 10, 11, 12. It's a blueprint for the end of this current age. We can actually know what's going to happen and we can pray. Daniel 11 says that his people in that day are going to know what to do. They're going to do great exploits with their God. They're going to shine like stars. The wise are going to shine like stars. And so, so how do we do it? I'll just give you a few quick keys about how we're going to do this as a community. We're going to make prayer and fasting a habit, a lifestyle. Daniel made it his lifestyle to, in crisis, he prays and he fasts. That's what he did. And he lived a holy lifestyle. We're going to know the times that we live in, and we're going to know the book. We're going, to be, we're going to press in to be like the sons of Issachar, who knew the times and knew what Israel ought to do. We're going to make it a priority to dig deep into the word of God, to interpret global events. And you know what? Holy living. This is a big one. It matters. Daniel's holy living behind closed doors where nobody saw him actually affected the government of nations. So you think that what you're doing doesn't matter. It matters. Moms, when you're caring for your children and just doing the mundane, it matters in the government of God. When you're just, when you're 
in your office cubby and you can make a decision that, oh, if you fudge here, nobody's really going to know. But, you know, if I, if I do the right thing, maybe nobody will know. No, God knows. If your holy living actually affects the government of God. And in 2 Peter 3, 12, it says our holy conduct and godliness actually hastens the return of Jesus. We are going to live as people of prayer and repentance. You know, I, have a, I have a friend. Her name's Jill. She's so funny. She's so black and white. She, always, she says, it's always a good day to repent. When in, when in doubt, repent. <laughs> and I love that. Joel 2 tells us repentance is the way for nations. Repentance in Daniel 9 brought about, um, you know, massive shift in government. We're going to pray and repent. And we're going to sing. And, and you know what, Rachel? We're going to sing, aren't we? We're going to sing because God wants us to sing. Even in the hard times, we are going to sing. Uh, in Habakkuk, uh, it, I mean, hard stuff. It's a whole sermon in itself. But at the end, he says, you know what, Lord? Even if the fig tree doesn't blossom and give us fruit, even if there's no olive in the field and there's no food, we are going to rejoice in the Lord. We are going to joy in the God of our salvation. And it says, this is, this is actually a hymn that they're going to sing with their instruments. We are going to sing even when things get hard. We're going to sing holy like the elders did. The elders in Revelation 4 and 5, they're, they're actually the government of God. They're around his throne right now. They're in the council room of heaven. And you know how they're governing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the name of the Lord. Power and dominion, authority are yours forever and ever. And they just keep singing it. We're going to call, uh, call him holy. We're going to sing and administrate the government of God. And... Um, I actually have a whole whole example on just an example. Maybe I'll do it on a Wednesday night on Israel and what we know from the scripture and, and how that can affect our prayers for the headlines. Um, but we won't do it today. Um, what I want to do right now is just pray. I've given you a lot of information and probably a lot of scriptures. Um, we didn't just go through a passage like Randy normally goes through and just goes through so wonderfully. Um, I've thrown a lot of different scriptures at you. Um, but it's because the whole of this book um, shows us uh, our mandate to govern and how to do it, how to administrate the government of God. And so I want to pray for us, and then I want us to pray and just say yes to it, you know. Um, and you know, if you have a prayer to pray for our government, let's do it. Let's just do it right now. Um, let, let's just practice what we, um, what we just heard. And then um, I'll turn it over to Randy. Is that okay, Randy, that we do this? Okay, thumbs up. So, Father, we love you. We say yes, and I just stir my own heart in this crazy time where it's been uh, maybe easy to lag back because it's not familiar, but you're familiar, your word is familiar, and we know um, from your word that we are to rise up in faith with one another, with being cheered on by the great cloud of witnesses to take the baton and govern, Lord, govern in, in your government, in your administration. So God, today we pray, Lord, for our nation, um, and we, we, we just 
declare, Lord, that you are holy and there is none other but you. And we, we are asking God that you would uh, give wisdom and revelation to the leaders of our city, God, to the leaders uh, in D.C., Lord, that they would, even if they don't know you, that they would be almost haunted <laughs> and, and driven by your spirit, that we would be able to freely enjoy the benefits of good government, the gospel being preached, the, the ability to assemble when we can do that again. And that we could actually export the gospel of Christ to the nations of the world. We love you and we say yes to the government of God today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. We will be back next week. We hope that your week is a good one.